Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. Guys, how's it going? Not bad. I got a new haircut. And it looks awesome. I got a new haircut. I'm totally, like, stoked because I feel, like, more myself. It looks great. Thank you. Super fresh. And my uh, stylist did this, like, reverse buzz cut thing at the top. It's, it's. I got to say, I always say to my stylist, I'm like, you know, be creative. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just don't want to look like anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> like That's my main thing. Yeah, right. I just want cool. something that will fit me. I'm always yeah. so impressed with like fades and stuff. Like I have no idea how they do it. I'm like amazed you at the have, artistry. You have to have a really good stylist. Yeah. Yeah. You can't fuck around with that shit. I no. I was walking to record today and I walked by this new like pretend cool uh, hair place Yeah, and it had this photo of this child who had a fade but it was like a white kid and it went to like this big like bouffant kind of um, like uh, Danny Zuko hair and I was like <laughs> yeah, yeah. that is that not that kid's real hair it <laughs> is such a wig it looks so bad oh, and fake and I-, <laughs> I was like why would anyone go to this place uh-huh. I think fades look weird on white kids I'll be honest with you yeah but it was like a fade and then like a big like poof in the front <laughs> oh no 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 yeah. no 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 can't have it both ways get out oh, of right yeah. right it was bizarre uh, people appropriating no. all the different hairs <laughs> 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 Next thing you're going to tell me he had dreads on the one side, yeah. too. <laughs> Let's make a hair fusion. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, have you guys seen the Crazy Rich Asians trailer, which came out this week? Yes. I can't even. Yes. It was so awesome. It was. The love of my life, Constance, I know, is everywhere. I, I and I couldn't say. be happier. I love her. Oh my god, she She's looks just amazing. Magic. Also, Michelle Yeoh looks regal as mm. fuck. Yep. Everyone looks really good. It's going to be, like, hot. Yeah. I Yeah, I can't wait. What's the release date again? August 17th. Oh, that's too far. I know. Doesn't that feel like a lifetime away? We should have a bad and bitchy excursion to see Crazy Rich Asians. Just because the first time I ever heard it about it mm-hmm. was when Aaron talked about it on an earlier episode last year. Yeah. Mm, have uh, you read the books? I have all of them. Okay. Are, are they good? Is it too late? Or should I still read them? Yes. Oh, no. Definitely read them. Okay. I'm going to read them. I've only heard great things. I have to books. reread just because I need to refresh on the story. Yeah. Um, but it was great to see Asians in not a stereotypical context mm-hmm. and to have like super hot Asian men and just like abs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. There's it's like thirst trap central. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need to see this. I need to watch this. I feel like we need to do this. I'm into it. I mean, <laughs> we still haven't gone to see Black Panther. So. I was hoping you would bring I, that I, I know. I was hoping, too. I was like. I, hey, we were gay. We had already seen it. You're the yeah, only one who yeah. hasn't seen it. And yeah. Because I, I, I had no one to go with. We offered. Yeah. And then like we are all busy. <laughs> Curse our busy lives. Yeah. Well, I suggested a Sunday afternoon. Everyone's like, I've got plans. I didn't. I did. I admit. I, I did. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I'm, I am the fuckery in you this situation. Is, I mean, I think we can watch Black Panther without it being on the big screen, but it will not be as awesome, Vi- like visually, just like as a film, like the way it's done. Right. I mean, my but only option watch it. is to like bootleg it illegally uh, onto my computer. I don't know why Yuri would want to put this out into the public sphere. So. <laughs> Because it's they're a gonna, scenario. They're gonna not come fact. for you. <laughs> Remind anyway. me to tell you the time that I got busted as a master student at UFT f- by Universal Studios writing to. I mean, oh yeah, my dad's gotten those emails. Yeah, except when the <laughs> university cuts your internet access <gasps> off when you live there. Are you serious? Because you downloaded "I Love You, Man," <laughs> a film starring a Paul Rudd and Jason Segel. Hey. Great movie. I don't know what you're talking about. I fucking love that movie. But worth getting your internet cut off? <sighs> so embarrassing. It was so embarrassing. Well, anyway. Uh, on that anyway. note, <laughs> let's get into it. This week in feminism, our favorite female misogynist, Barbara Kay, goes all in on misogyny. So Barbara Kay, who was, you know, to be truth be told, a runner-up in our misogynist of the week this <laughs> week wrote an op-ed on her national platform, the National Post in Canada. Um, this was on Tuesday following the van attack in Toronto Monday afternoon, uh, wherein a young white male crashed a rented rider truck into a group of pedestrians at Young and Finch in tr- downtown Toronto, killing 10 people and injuring many others. On this tragic event, Barbara Kay opined, quote, an attack of this magnitude can be much more difficult when it's ideological. It can produce social tension. The debates can be exhausting. A merely deranged massacrist can produce social unity. A single grieving circle of citizens who will privately experience dread of the chaos the massacre represents. But I will cop to extreme selfishness in saying I would have preferred if this had been an act of jihadism or something else linked to a clear ideology or cause, because I like to be able to think about the things in the long term. I prefer mental order to mental chaos, end quote. Barbara Kay writes this, despite the attacker, Alec Manassian, having publicly expressed his motive of the incel rebellion. So I think it's been, like we can say that it's been a tough week for women in Canada Absolutely. I mean, this is, um, I guess, the second or one of the largest, (coughs) (coughs) sorry, Um, like large scale um, deaths or um, serial attacks. Um, So it's mass murder, mass murders. I'm like, what is the word? Yeah. So it's really tragic um, for many reasons. It really harkens, um, has like a lot of uh, similarity to the Polytechnique uh, massacre um, in the early 90s that saw um, women killed for simply attending engineering school in Canada, if you don't know about the history of that, and that's why we commemorate um, the Day of Violence Against Women. But it's, it's so in the context of all of that, in the context of what th- he had written, it makes absolutely no sense that we're not attributing uh, this clear motive, or people like Barbara Kay don't think of that as an ideology. Um, but it's been a, a real education also this week in, un, into the, the depths of the, the manosphere, as they say, um, which I don't know. I find, I think of this as, I just, I, I really think that 
it shows how much how insular Canadian media is. I mean, in terms of the manosphere, yes. Um, but you know, we already knew. We were talk people been talking about this forever. They get we get doxxed, we get harassed, we get we get men who are saying, Oh, you're just basically a killjoy feminist. Feminism needs to die. I think this week in Canada shows how much this fucking country needs feminism, to be honest. That's what I mm-hmm. see. Because Barbara Kay, okay, first of all, <laughs> to be clear, I've had a run in with Barbara Kay on Twitter before. Ooh. And she's basically she's basically a right wing diet racist. Mm-hmm. She is. There's no and what she is. Sorry, I'm. I like no. I I'm not even gonna pretend. Um, I remember uh, talking to her, or we were exchanging something around the Abdirman Abdi time, mm-hmm. and how she, you know she she's just built the common refrain of well he was basically trying to paint him a criminal and basically saying along the lines of, well, he kind of deserved it, Mm -hmm. which she did not fully say, but it could be interpreted that way. Let's put it that way. So I will say that. So I think she's just a right-wing, sexist, misogynist, racist, whatever. I I really don't think that she adds much to the discussion anything of um salience or um depth or understanding i don't think she understands the issues she talks about and i think that her under her understanding of sexism racism um gender discrimination etc um and homophobia and Islamophobia is rudimentary. Mm-hmm. I I agree with you, Erica, and I think that for people who are like Barbara Kay, who don't necessarily believe that sexism exists in the same way that we do, I think mm-hmm. they understand, like in broadly speaking these people want equality and that they want women to have be represented in like the economy in the same way and like oh well we should have women executives but we're not going to like make it easy for them they should just be there and they'll get there based on merit which yes women should be qualified for the jobs that they're getting but they should be given but but they're not but they're like discriminated against like from like an inherent bias right exactly and she doesn't they don't she doesn't believe that it's structural yes because our entire idea of what merit is is basically it's based on maleness yes absolutely um and i think that you know for people who believe that you know systemic sexism and structural sexism don't exist the idea that men and i guess some women but predominantly men hate women so much that they would resort to violence is completely 
unconscionable. Like they can't imagine a world in which that is the truth. But they don't have to imagine it. Like I think what's really, um, I mean, so to Erica's point that we, we all knew that this sort of thing exists. Anyone who is a woman has experienced sexism knows. I think that's certainly true. Um, and I would say, you know, like misogyny by any other name is still misogyny. But the, the details of what the incel like culture is and movement um, was definitely new to me um, and in terms of how people were speaking and the divisions among MRA misogynists like that whole like there are delineations um, and there are ideo ideologies and there are manifestos written by these people there is a history of violence from these people and in fact um, and and there's a, a lot written on this um, Archie Mann had a really um, good Twitter um, thread about his investigation um, like journalist work into the, the, this culture and this subculture and how these people write and how they speak following up on Alec uh, Missiani's um, uh, Facebook like post which has been verified and was pretty much verified by Tuesday when Barbara Kay wrote that piece but you know the, the way these people write it's like it, it it's exact it's every it covers every checkpoint checklist on the terror like terror things that qualify as terrorism um like calls for rebellion calls to make like ter like literally terrorize people so that they don't want to leave their homes um finding the best ways to mass murder people finding ways to to commit mass murders that aren't uh, that can't be excused by by saying it's gun violence people talking about mass poisonings acid attacks as, as being a good approach um, and again, like manifestos, et cetera, were written. So it's not like this subtle one angry person in the mm -hmm. night, like on their laptop, the way she's making it out to sound. And I don't think, I mean, you, you don't need to believe that misogyny is rampant in society to believe that these people said these things and what they said qualifies as terrorism. Um, because you can, you can, you know, you can identify the one group without adopting the, the feminist philosophy overall. I think like Barbara Kay is like int intentionally misleading people. She is picking and choosing what she considers as fact. It's the same with the Quebec mosque shooting. Like people don't want to attribute um, motive to two white terrorist attackers um, that would potentially implicate their own actions. It's because it means that there may be something wrong with them. Yeah, exactly. And and, and um, the collective um, conscience mm -hmm. of the country is rooted in the moral, the morality of white people. And I find that morality in terms of the Canadian discourse is a baseline. And... It does, and that baseline does not allow for um, for a look into structural issues. There's a system, mm -hmm. and whenever a group um, that used to have less power gain power, this is the reaction that you get. Mm -hmm. Women, minorities, all sorts of you know, mm -hmm. is it's you know, um, LGBTQ people, same thing. I was actually, sorry, I'm going to, I was actually um, reading something about um, the acceptance of LGBTQ people has fallen. Mm -hmm. 
since Trump got elected in the United States. Mm. I think there was a survey done. Um, I'm not, I don't think it's GLAD that does a survey. I, I think it's some other group. Mm-hmm. But um, basically what you're seeing is a construction, I feel. I think Barbara Kay, Christy Blatchford had something too, um, who I think are both misogynists and hate women. Um, I do believe that they are sowing seeds for the construction of denial. Mm. And we are so good in this country at denying what is wrong that because we can blame it on the United States. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen a lot of Canadian pundits say, well, it seems like the populism from the United States has right. come to Canada. Right. And I'm like, like it wasn't here Not before. the homegrown racism We're that we've bred, bred Exactly. Over and yeah. if you tell somebody there's, and this is the thing with Barbara Kay, is that if you tell somebody like her, listen, this is what I've experienced, this is what we see, mm-hmm. this is the nuance. It's like they just don't want to accept mm-hmm. that. There is a structural and I would say a cultural issue here. Mm-hmm. I'm not. But which yeah. is annoying because they absolutely want to talk about the structures and mechanisms that like and arguably from their perspective, keep um, Islamic ex- extremism alive. Mm-hmm. And like her entire article like that excerpt is just the last paragraph the rest of the article, which, as Aaron pointed out, like she's using this platform, the, the National Post, like so much exposure the day after the attack, and she devotes her entire piece to talking about ha- the ex- extensiveness of is- of Islamic extremism and radicalization that happens, and how much easier it is to look at that and 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 what address that issue. What does that but have to do is, with the Toronto that's attacks? That's the thing. That's, that's the thing. The she thing. she had written this column no matter what. She was ready to press that no matter the fuck was behind that. Wheel. So the last three attacks in Canada will go the Parliament Hill. Mm-hmm. Quebec yep. mosque shooting, yep. mm-hmm. and this one. Mm-hmm. One, only one of those three was perpetrated by a quote-unquote terrorist or who s- someone who was right. acting on behalf of who they thought was... A known terrorist organization. Yes. I mean. Yeah, who wasn't actually... Who and ended who up, yeah. didn't end up killing anyone. He killed the, the one soldier, okay. or the one uh, police officer. Right. Um, but... That b- and, and that person wasn't actually like an agent. Or no, anything. he was just acting. He was a white man who was just arguably radicalized in some way and acting in as a lone like like lone actor. Yeah, and uh, Vicky Mochama uh, wrote about this in the Toronto Star that in the past several years in North America, the people and I think she also refer- referenced um, a couple of attacks in Europe. But all of the men who have, the perpetrators of these attacks, have all been 30 and younger. Mm-hmm. And so they're mm-hmm. millennials. Mm-hmm. And they've all been radicalized basically on the inter- from the internet. Yeah. And we're not talking about how to stop that radicalization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so what would be, like, just quickly, because I don't want to, like, veer off too much. We're going to be thinking about this for a long time to come, and a lot's been written about it. But how do we address that? Like, how do we... We first have to acknowledge that it's a problem. Yeah. Like... For sure. I, I haven't even seen... Yeah, you're right. ...much saying that... I Like, the radicalization of these white dudes is a problem. And they're not necessarily being radicalized by 
jihadists. They're being radicalized by white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and 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 sexist like hate mongering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I think white supremacy, no, no, it's I all encompassing. Yeah. I think the of the patriarchy yeah. and misogyny <laughs> too. I just use it as an umbrella term. Yeah. yeah. I don't mean it just in racial context. Sure. It's like I mean it too in um, context of gender discrimination too. Can I ask and you another yeah. question, just to kind of build off of this a yep. little bit? Do you so Elliot Roger is the guy that Alec. Right. Masani had it, it kind of adapt like adopted his mm-hmm. manifesto and that's who incels like follow sort yeah. of um they like revere him and he gunned down and stabbed 20 people um killing six in isla vista california in 2014 um and he killed himself i believe and he had written all you girls who rejected me and locked and looked down upon me and treated me like scum while you gave yourself to other men and all of you men for living a better life than me. All of you sexually active men, I hate you. I hate you all. And I can't wait to give you exactly what you deserve. Utter annihilation. So this is like this is the guy. This mm-hmm. is what the incel movement is. Um, I don't I don't remember this incident. I don't remember anything. What year was it? I 2014. Don't rem- I remember it. I don't It's remember. like a recent memory. We, we should be. This is one of those attacks we should be talking about. Like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like not in the public consciousness because it doesn't fit the narrative. I remember that attack because what I saw, the other thing too is he resented, I was like, I remember thinking, what the fuck is this kid on? Because I remember that, that just in that, in his manifesto or Mm -hmm. his, suicide note whatever right um the amount of entitlement Mm -hmm. that he felt he had and um also the way i contextualized part of it was the goal was to get more towards whiteness because he was he's also he was also i think half filipino and stuff Mm. and so what i saw was a guy yeah, he was he was against interracial relationships. That was a big part of the right, yeah. right. Which should worry, yeah, people mm-hmm. totally. So you're right; they are really connected. They, yeah, th- racism and sexism and every other ism mm-hmm. is just a continuum. It's just a continuum, <laughs> okay? All of them. I, I always say, I'm like, whenever I hear some misogynist bullshit, I'm like, wait for racism. Because that train is never far behind, mm-hmm. you know, and it's always on time. It pulls up right to the station. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, so like these incel men, they they genuinely believe that they are entitled to women's bodies and that women exist for the sole purpose of providing them with enjoyment and pleasure. And there is apparently a place on the Internet in which there's a blog post where they talk about sexual inequity as a ter- uh, as a way talking about like economic inequity mm-hmm. so that basically sex and women should be doled out equally amongst men God. in the same way that like you know jobs and money should be doled out equally in like socialism what the ever living fuck <laughs> right like they don't understand the socialism of sex yeah really they don't understand or give a fuck about women and consent and agency over our own bodies. They exist p- 
purely because they believe they are entitled to women. I really think we're dealing with a bunch of lazy fucks here. Because I got to say, instead of improving oneself to make oneself more interesting and more appealing to others and they social blame, interaction they blame others and doing the right. fucking uh, I, don't, I don't know that that's the answer i mean so what if you don't have sex and you happen to be like be- you know like when you're not owed these people actually start out their lineage is that they start out trying pickup artistry which yeah. is in a whole yeah, other well that's another shit story, show yeah. but it doesn't work for them for whatever reason and then because of what i said well <laughs> but you know what so what like you know but yeah, sex has always been about power, right? And well, sh- no, let, no, let me let me rephrase. Yeah. Sex has an element of power in the sort of way we perceive and use it in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um or else we wouldn't have sexual harassment, right? Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have rape, we wouldn't have right. Right? I guess my my point is you can try to self-improve. You cannot. Who cares? You know, the Beatles sang about all the lonely people. There have been lonely people since, like, the beginning, the of, beginning time. of time. Not everyone is having sex all the time. There are people who choose to be celibate. There are people who, like, do, can't have sex. There are people who don't who are asexual. Like, the world doesn't revolve around fucking sex. Get over yourself. Get over your sense of entitlement. And just live. Our next topic is this idea that Trump voters are driven by economic anxiety, which is actually false, as a study has found. So many people have credited Donald Trump's presidential win to white Christian male voters' economic anxiety or the so-called, quote, left-behind theory. While a study published recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences questions this explanation and it's the latest to suggest that Trump voters weren't actually driven by anger over the past, but rather driven by fear of what may come. White Christian and male voters, the study suggests, turned to Mr. Trump because they felt their status was at risk. Uh, Diana C. Muntz, the author of the study and a political science and communications professor at the University of Pennsylvania, s- says, quote, It's much more of a symbolic threat that people feel. It's not a threat to their own economic well-being. It's a threat to their group's dominance in our country overall. Trump's support was linked to a belief that high-status groups such as whites, Christians, or men face more discrimination than low-status groups like minorities, Muslims, or women. Well, duh. (laughs) Well, we were just talking about... It's funny because, like, this... I didn't necessarily believe... A lot of people believe the economic theory. Is that what you mean? That folk like I think that to a portion, I think is the economic theory. But the results of the study aren't surprising to me. Like, of no. course, like we, I knew. I don't know that I inherently like was aware, like, co- like very conscious of that. But like, of course, this isn't surprising. Yeah, I think it just it's like articulated. Whatever. Yeah, articulated better, and it's helpful to parse these things out. And the unfortunate thing is that a lot of Democrats are so worried now about gearing their economic policy in such a way that it captures um you know middle america mm-hmm. um who they th- who a lot of people have been 
saying have been ignored by Democrats or that they haven't been able to make clear how their policies are actually going to help them. Um, and I think the focus isn't about the economic policies themselves, which surely are far more beneficial under the Democrats for low income and middle income people than they are under Republicans, as the recent tax bill shows. But it's about how to address this fear or how to challenge that presumption. Yeah, I think my I think in my own brain, I understood and accepted the economic argument realized and thinking that it was fueled by this fear totally yeah and i, th I think, I think they're true. probably very much intertwined yeah um which is why you get the mixed data but i think this is sort of yeah. saying like well actually the one comes before the other because for a lot of people a lot of the argument is like oh well you know the immigrants and the brown people the black people are coming to take our jobs mm -hmm. which speaks to the ec economic aspect in terms of jobs and employment but it the, it, the yeah. crux of it is, is the fear. actually yeah and the yeah. entitlement yeah totally so just like we were talking about barbara k and incel and the entitlement to women's bodies there is a white male christian based um um straight heterosexual um entitlement of superiority to everybody who is not that and um that is to me what is fueling all of these so-called quote unquote right-wing ideologies right-wing um tribalism i would say and that is why the idea of reverse racism came in it's because white, male, straight men felt as though they were losing ground compared to everybody else in terms of power and control. That's, that's been, if you look at it through that lens, it explains a whole fucking lot. Yeah, and it's, and it's not just economic anxiety, then it becomes their place in society and that women, they're going to be, are there going to be going to... There is a pecking order yeah. in North America. And I don't think that people even, like the average person, if you're not like, if, if as uh, let's just say the average white person understands that there's a pecking order. And the pecking order is number one, the white, I would say less Christian in Canada, just because Canada is a little bit more secular in that way in certain areas actually what am i talking about that's bullshit because i'm from alberta i know better than that um <laughs> never mind uh no not secular it's because i'm living in ontario um but um thank well, you for thank you for the head no shake, no no the but, the, the, I would, but yeah. christianity isn't like the pr it's usually not the practice of it people aren't actively in canada i think like professing their their Christian religion but you notice that people identify as Christian when when that belief is threatened right you know what I mean? or like right. that there is a Christian underpinning and right. like you see that around Muslim scare like the reason we have yeah. people decrying because I mean look it's been a couple years under uh Prime Minister Trudeau's reign and I think people have forgotten how much outward racism and outward um you know islamophobia and that stuff is still there and it's still pretty flagrant like as we see from barbara k's column but 
I mean, under Harper, it was like every day coming from the government itself, which was like not hiding the fact that they actually had and were proud to have Christian roots. Um, do you so, know what I mean? So question mm-hmm. how, for both of you, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, how much do you think the Harper regime has radicalized um, young men? Oh, I think that there's uh, maybe not radicalized, but but added to that fuel. Let's add fuel to that fire that had already been lit, maybe. I think there's definitely an impact on what people feel they can say and can't say out loud. Yes. And I think that it wasn't really public until closer to the last election. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, it hadn't been plus in those in those days, too. I think you probably had fewer of these um, supporting sort of media. And mm-hmm. I use that in quotations like um, I'm sure Proud Boys was around, but um, things like what's the one in Ontario? There's this um, that hates Kathleen Wynne so much. And but it really is. Uh, Ontario. Anyway, Mm. there's there. Oh, I know. I mean, Ontario first, or Or whatever they are, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I find that the subtext. It's the subtext I think that really concerns me, to be honest. When it comes to um, our political actors, I guess you could say. I mean, like, this stuff is definitely happening. Um, And I think there are um, legitimizing forces and definitely, um, I mean, even this week the conservatives were talking about illegal immigration yet again and, you know, the overspill of people coming across the border and taking advantage. And all of that is saying all the right things to certain people. And I think, too... I, I will say, you know, and, yeah. and we forgot about um, Kelly Leach for a second, but that's mm-hmm. all part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Jason Kenney. Fuck yeah. Jason <laughs> Kenney's going to do some damage for sure. Yeah. So, for example, I really, I think that Doug Ford is going to win the election. And I think he's going to win win the election, not only as a rebuke to Kathleen Wynne, but as a rebuke to Trudeau. And Trudeau's multiculturalism, his feminism. I think there's going to be a lot of pushback in terms of the Trudeau government. There already is. Mm -hmm. And it's because um, white men, especially in this country, who have been perched so high in this country. Mm -hmm. The word, I will say this, the word of a white male, like, trumps everybody and everything. Um, But... I really do think that white men think they're losing ground Mm -hmm. and they see Justin Trudeau as um, like a traitor, a traitor and enabling everyone else. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think Doug Ford's going to (laughs) win. We'll we'll talk about but we're not talking about Doug Ford. We can talk about a bit more. Yeah. 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 But going back to to men, white men losing white straight men losing their place. I think that's what all this populism is about. Mm-hmm. I think that's what what's underpinning the right wing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's something that has been it's an idea that has been nurtured by politicians too. Mm-hmm. So recently the Simpsons 
the TV show have come under some long overdue criticism over the characterization of Apu and representations of Indian and South Asian people in the show. Comedian Hari Kondabalu released a documentary called The Problem with Apu, which tracked the history of Apu and drawing on the experiences of some of Hollywood's biggest names of South Asian descent about what it was like coming up with Apu as one of the only representations of South Asian people in television and film. This week, Hank Azaria, the white voice actor behind Apu, spoke out. He appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and we have a clip of their interaction. What, what do you think should happen with the character going forward? Yeah, I've given this a lot of thought, really a lot of thought. Um, and as I say, my eyes have been opened. And I think the most important thing is we have to listen to South Asian people, Indian people in this country, when they talk about what they feel and, and, and how they think about, about this character and what their American experience of it has been. And as you know, in television terms, listening to voices means inclusion in the writer's room. I really want to see Indian, South Asian writer, writers in the room, not in a token way, but genuinely informing whatever new direction this character may take, including how it is voiced or not voiced. You know, I, I'm perfectly willing and happy to step aside or help transition it into something new. I really hope that's what The Simpsons does. And it just, it not only makes sense, but it just feels like the right thing to do to me. And recently, the TV show addressed this criticism head on with Lisa kind of saying that, you know, times change and people are too sensitive. More or less. Yeah, that was so upsetting. Times change and we know better, therefore we do better. The other Seriously. thing too is that, you know, you have a South you have a South Asian community that was born in North America that grew up being called Paki. Mm -hmm. Okay. Their voices or or whatever because, you know, white people, <laughs> they called everybody Paki who was like darker than whatever an italian and so i mean i think for example when you grow up with that kind of 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 racism directed at your culture mm -hmm. but you grew up as the other as a canadian or american but as the other i think that then this generation is like fuck you mm -hmm. you know and more power to them what I love about um, the documentary, The Problem with Apu, which um, I think deals with this really well, is like it goes into, first of all, you're hearing from people who had to like really hack it and before making it big in Hollywood. And he talks to like such a breadth of, um, you know, actors and comedians um, who had to audition, you know, like amazing people like Cal Penn who were told to audition and put on an Apu-like accent. Um, and couldn't catch a break for the longest time. Like, I think that's just, like, so heartbreaking to see, like, such talented people struggle with that. Um, but also, speaking from a perspective of saying, because Hari's very clear about this. Like, I mean, he's an amazing comedian. If you haven't listened to his stuff, you really should, because I think he's so funny. He has a special coming out on Netflix soon. Um, but his whole, he was like, I was a huge fan of The Simpsons. Like, I love that show. It meant a lot to me. And I'm saying this as someone who, uh, like, consumes white culture. Like, you know, I'm, like, nerd out over the same thing these people do and, like, not a shred of, like, respect thrown back. And a lot of the, the 
documentary is him actually trying to track down Hank Azaria to have Hank come onto the sh- onto the documentary and sit down with him. And at one point, I think Hank Azaria agreed to do an interview, but not on the, not for the documentary, but maybe with Mark Marin on Marin's show. That was like a neutral place, which is like whatever. Um, and then backed out of that. And then I think this is only because of the backlash of that episode, which I don't know if you saw, but it was super painful to watch. It's like they rewrote Lisa's character. Lisa, who is like the one voice of like reason and social justice and like activism, then starts saying things like, you know, isn't it it's too bad that political correctness has gotten us so, you know, far away. And it's something no that was, yeah, yeah, and something, something that was beautiful and interesting at the time has changed, it's changed. But that doesn't mean we lo- it loses its value. Like, just like some fucked up ash. And she does it talking right to the camera, mm-hmm. like breaking the fourth wall. So you're like, it was super intentional. It was so passive aggressive. Um, and I, I, it's, I'm not surprised that Hank Azaria then comes out and says this after because he's been, you know, and this is someone who goes around giving speeches as you see this a lot in the, the documentary. Like he does like commencement speeches where he does the speech in Apu's voice. Like he's very, he's a well-known actor, but he's very well known for Apu. Yeah. And like he plays it up and he thinks it's, and actually in the initial characterization, the accent wasn't supposed to be that far. He overdid it intentionally and people laughed and they were like yeah i guess this is funny we should keep this and no one in the room there's still no one in the room who writes for who is south asian and writes for the show or voices for the show um but in any case i mean i guess activism works but it should not have taken that much to get them to come around to just acknowledging they need more writers like well especially it's been like what over 20 years god longer yeah yeah it's nuts I think in 20 years you need a fucking rewrite. Or an evolution. Yeah. yeah. Well, why can't we, for example, why can't we see Apu's kids? You do, see, ha- you do see Apu's kids. Okay. And in one episode you see um, Apu has a uh, like nephew um, who is voiced by a South Asian actor who comes and like essentially mocks Apu and how, wh- how traditional he is and whatever. But you see Apu's kids, the joke about Apu's kids, well, one, that Apu has an arranged marriage, which, you know, can be like it's a, an okay thing honestly um and whatever there's a great documentary about uh, arranged marriages on netflix if you're interested but in this case it's made it's done for laughs mm-hmm. and then they have like 20 kids or something ridiculously absurd oh, and that's the punchline um but if you want to know how shitty like the fandom of the simpsons is go on hari Kondabalu's twitter page because he's been retweeting all the hate mail he gets yeah. for like the last year yeah. and it's like non-stop people are like you know f- you know like just like yeah fuck you for ruining the show like who like you're not funny no one's forcing you to watch this like and plus a lot of sexist stuff or like um sorry racist stuff that i'm not willing to say but like yeah anyway i said sexist because i'm reading this one that says you're a fucking idiot and i know your mother got sex with ape because you look like an ape and your brain is the same brain of the ape this is like a direct message he got. like this is the kind of shit and like yeah it's just it's really bad it sort of looks like my twitter feed yeah (laughs) welcome to being a woman or a person of color on the internet. Exactly. Like, I'm like, this, this sounds is, familiar. I don't think Hank Azaria appreciates the cost. Like, yeah. I think he, he does to some degree because he's recanting now. But, like, the real lived cost for Hari and uh, many other people Why who live day to day with so this racism. What would you say the real cost is? How do you mean? Well, 
You talked about the cost. I'm trying to. I'm saying like this is the cost. The cost is facing this racism every day for speaking out on something that shouldn't be. Well, I'm no, I'm more talking about the cost of the character itself. I think I think people need to understand what the cost of having a character like that is. And what it is, is that you see. Your culture is reflected through white prism that is essentially mm-hmm. mocking who you are and mocking your identity. Well, it's the same as like any person of color in mm-hmm. entertainment mm-hmm. for yeah. the past like several decades, or and basically since the beginning of but entertainment. But I think that people need to understand that those those stereotypes and that mockery is then manifested in, in real, real life. life. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And yes, I think yes. that's what people are missing is that those things manifest themselves in real life and they affect how you even see who you are. Because yeah, totally. No, absolutely. Yeah. And this well, is, we all know this, right? And this is why, like, as we talked at the top, Crazy Rich Asians is so important. Yes. And that's why the fact that they're bringing out male Asian sex symbols yes. is so important. Yeah. Because m- Asian male sexuality is a fucking joke in entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're completely emasculated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that they're, they're showing these like thirst trap men, like abs <laughs> everywhere. Hello. Like very handsome. I mean, I guess if that's your thing. <laughs> <laughs> abs. I can look. Ugh. I can only look. <laughs> um, but yeah, like they're just flipping the script. They're just being like, fuck this bullshit. Uh, We are sexy, too. And here it is. Mm -hmm. Because basically what we're talking about is breaking down those stereotypes and that lens of whiteness reflecting your own culture or or understanding it in a way or mocking it in a way or mocking it, period. And I just want to be explicit about what the cost is, because if that's your main um, representation of what's or of who South Asians are, mm-hmm. especially when you watch The Simpsons in childhood, you will carry that, mm-hmm. and you will carry that through your job. You will carry that through your interactions. You will carry that, mm-hmm. and I don't think. And this is the thing: The Simpsons are responsible for raising a generation, totally. or two. Except Aaron, she's the exception. But exactly. Everybody else. <laughs> well, me, me too, in a way. Like I, Ha-ha. I was <laughs> never. Look, no one was allowed to watch it, but I'm just saying that's why you snuck into the basement and watched it behind your mother's back. It wasn't the Sim- Simpsons <laughs> I snuck to watch. Trust. <laughs> but, but. Like I yeah, I just want to be explicit about yeah, about yeah. how it reverberates through society and through time. Uh, abs- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's yeah. Our last topic for this segment is how Slack, the office messaging app, has outperformed other Silicon Valley companies when it comes to employing so called minority employees. At Slack, women make up thirty one percent of leaders and hold thirty four percent of technical roles. The percentage of underrepresented minorities, including black, Hispanic, American Indian or Alaskan employees are in some cases triple that of peer companies. Slack does this without having a specialized head of diversity, which are generally the norm at most Silicon Valley companies. At Slack, the absence of a single diversity leader seems to signal that diversity and inclusion aren't standalone missions to be shunted off to a designated specialist, 
but are rather intertwined with the company's overall strategy. From the beginning, Slack did blind code review when hiring for technical positions, which is basically a blind casting or name, name blind hiring from resumes. They did away with the usual interview style and set clear interview and selection criteria in order to circum circumvent bias. Managers conducted mock interviews in, in advance to prepare. CEO of Slack, Stuart Butterfield, says, quote, We exist in the actual world. If we all agree that this world has some systemic issues and it's sexist and it's racist, that's not going to stop when people walk into our office. Here, Big up Slack. Here, here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we use Slack. <laughs> yeah, we, do. we do. I love Slack. I feel a lot better about we it. We don't now. use Slack as much as we should. Okay. Okay, we're going to use it more now. <laughs> I just I want you to know nagging does not work on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep y'all updated if Amy uses Slack more. <laughs> I like it. It's like a habit, though. You have to form good habits. So yeah. I'm just working on it. But I do enjoy the platform. And now I might enjoy it more knowing that, it, like, you know. Yeah. They've got a great uh, contrast as a company. I mean, I shouldn't say great. They they admit they have a lot to work on, and I think that's, like, key. But, like, they're starting from the right place. I just want to note mm -hmm. that their hiring and their sort of selection process is not done by AI. It's not oh. done by computers. Mm. It's done by human beings. But the process itself seems to be like introduce fewer opportunities for biases mm -hmm. than other people other companies yeah and i yeah. think that's key because we seem to think now that the only that the that like, humans can't be trusted yes yes <laughs> and that the only way forward is through a computer algorithm yeah mm. and like the keyword searches of resumes that actually just exactly. like eliminate you of finding an original or interesting person. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, which I think like kills your innovative staff. Mm -hmm. it, it reduces the likelihood that you're going to get innovative staff. Totally. And innovative staff come from different backgrounds. Yep. Or else they wouldn't be fucking innovative. Sorry. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, white people can't be innovative or the white guy can't be innovative. Of course. But what I'm saying is the more diversity you have around the table is the more innovative ideas mm -hmm. you're going to get because people's experiences matter in the way they contextualize mm -hmm. ideas. Yeah, it's like picking everyone on your staff to be from an Ivy League university. Which exactly. is actually something that's like does it like goes out of their way to go to like coding camps and like different types of places where people could have instead of just going to like MIT and recruiting from their from like top class, you know, top graduates at the top schools yeah um and, in, and that speaks to your point like yeah. the different kind of diversity like as well right so it's not to say that white people are like traditional like people who appear traditional um can't be bringing something creative to the table in fact more likely you're going to find creatives um and critical thinking folks who maybe didn't follow the conventional path exactly um, as if you people's allow for that people's um, backgrounds matter for sure yeah. you know i i've you know, the problem, it's not surprising that, you know, places like, you know, big companies mm -hmm. and corporations and governments can't be innovative. Their 
processes are linear and biased. Mm -hmm. Intentionally so. Mm -hmm. Even if they're doing name-blind hiring. Yeah. Because if your baseline is you need a certain type of degree. That's right. Yeah. Then and you know that there's already a select pool of like that pool is not so diverse to begin with. And yeah. 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 yeah and you end up filtering out so many. people. What I find is that from the beginning, the um, the lack of diversity is due to that filtering out of of certain people. Let me give you an example. So a f- couple of months ago, um, CBC put a call out for podcasters Mm -hmm. oh yes (laughs) and do you know what one of the requirements was you had to have you have to be a journalist and i remember tweeting them and i'm like why to start a podcast really yeah and she's like well it's it's a current affairs podcast so and i'm thinking and i said I honestly said, I already do a current affairs podcast, and this is the reason you can't get diverse voices around the table. Why do you have to have journalism experience to do a bloody podcast? It's ridiculous. And the fact that they put that barrier in means that they're only going to get a small pool of similar people. Companies need to look at the barriers they're erecting in the first place to even get the applicants, much less going through that process. And they don't. They they either ignore it or they're not mm-hmm. aware or whatever. But, you know, to get Ivy League white people, even Ivy League people, to or to have these 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 unnecessary um, requirements is exactly what's the first part is wrong, much less going through the hiring process and then the promotion process. Mm-hmm. That's another process that is extremely biased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also made me think of um, there was a, a lot of discussion around this in like the publishing industry. I think it was Penguin that's. Um, made a point of and trying to find it but I can't figure it out um, exactly who it was but a couple of years ago where they weren't looking at university degrees anymore as a criteria to address diversity issues. Ernst and Young did that yeah a few uh, I really I want to say 2014 or 2015 mm. um, in England mm. they mm. didn't require the what you call a four-year degree anymore because they wanted more diversity because they found that what they were getting, was the same way of thinking because all they recruited were these top-notch, we get the best grades kind of students. Mm -hmm. And what they found were that those students were not innovative. They didn't know how to think outside the box Mm -hmm. because our education system is very linear. Mm -hmm. Because they've never had to really work for anything. Well, that's another thing. They've never had to work for anything because that'll get you fucking innovative i'll tell you mm-hmm. that yep <laughs> when you when you got to make revenue or something yeah. that'll make your ass innovative mm-hmm. speaking mm-hmm. from experience mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well that does it for this week in feminism stay tuned for rent and receipts <laughs> now we're moving on to rent and receipts this is where we each bring something to share with the others and then we can kind of uh, rant about it so Erica, why don't you kick us off? So my rent and receipts this week is the strange case of a black mayor's 75% pay cut in Mississippi. 
In June of 2017, Rashonda Harper Beecham, 38, became the first black mayor of Pelahatchie, Mississippi, a small town just over 25 miles east of the state's capital city, Jackson. She is also the first black mayor in the entire surrounding majority white county. But things haven't gone smoothly for Beecham, working with the Pelahatchie Board of Aldermen, the town's legislative authority, which operates much like a city council. All were elected or re-elected to four terms at the same time as Beecham's election. Three were incumbents. The board has hastily announced rule changes and salary cuts, presented new hires without consulting the mayor, and has often overridden her vetoes of their decisions. On February 5th, the board of aldermen cut Beecham's salary by 75% and have their own salaries. The mayor and the board now make the same salary, $250 per month. What? What? Yeah. That's absurd. The mayor, the mayorality in Pelahatchie is a part-time position that previously earned a salary of $12,000. Yeah. Beecham wrote a veto of the pay cut of her salary, laying out her findings of no confidence in the board and its financial dealings. Apparently, the board is also under investigation. Mm. Um, Beecham's relationship with the board has turned hostile during the past months. Since she began her her tenure, the board almost always votes in a unanimous block, with Beecham often writing vetoes she now publishes on a Facebook page, only to have the board frequently overturn them in a following meeting. So I bring this up because I had seen recently that um, on marketwatch.com that um, they published a story um, in March of this year that said, when a woman or person of color becomes CEO, white men have a strange reaction. Mm. So, from this, new research suggests that when companies appoint a woman or person of color as CEO, white men, on average, don't appear to react very well. According to a study set to be published in the Academy of Management Journal's April issue, instead, the examination of a thousand executives working at large and mid-sized public companies found the top white male leaders tended to become less helpful to other workers, particularly women and people of color, after the appointment of a minority status CEO. They actually identify less psychologically with the organization after the appointment of a minority CEO, and that reduces their propensity to help their colleagues. Our theory is that the appointment of minority CEOs triggers biases. Yeah, wow. This shocked, is a, I know. Yeah. I'm so shocked. <laughs> I really do appreciate... White men not helpful? <laughs> you don't say. I appreciate the uh, this example, though, because um, it's, like, quite telling, and I imagine in a smaller community, um, like, really felt on a day-to-day, and this woman has all my sympathies for that reason. It's like a sad, racist version of Parks and Rec. It's also... 
kind of pulling from a thread that we talked about in the first part when you know white male status mm. is being challenged That's right. and they just don't like it and so they're gonna do whatever means get their get their status back by it but whatever means necessary yeah they're gonna pout and whine about reverse racism mm -hmm. that really doesn't exist it's not a thing mm -hmm. it's not based in any s it's just not a thing um and they're gonna whine and pout and um basically undermine that ceo mm -hmm. so this ceo now has to deal with an increased amount of emotional labor mm -hmm. right because it's really the ceo who has to reach out and lean in and reach mm -hmm. across the aisle so to speak mm -hmm. very president obama isn't mm -hmm. it and um the onus is on that ceo to do that work mm -hmm. whereas um well and it's like being set up to fail like that's it is what they're it doing. is being set yeah. up to fail well that was like eight years of the president obama's mm -hmm. tenure right he was set up to fail and when he didn't fail afterwards his legacy the you know they dismantled in a heart or trying to dismantle in a heartbeat mm -hmm. and it really is just it's it's the way a whiny seven-year-old school child would um would react if they didn't get their way mm -hmm. and that's what we call leadership really well, it's like, yeah, I mean, I think people are people are for the di principle of diversity until they see um, the top tier, uh, again, the status positions go, and then it calls into question um, what why those positions have status. And so if you're the white CEO after a person of color CEO, you're like, uh, well, this is this position has lost some of its luster. Some of its cachet. Yeah. Yeah. So going back, so this mayor um, of this county in Mississippi, mm -hmm. I found it interesting that that the board or the city council slashed her salary to be commiserate with theirs. Mm -hmm. And they had never done that before. Mm -hmm. So it is sort of, it is one of those ways that she's being taken down a peg to mm -hmm. their level mm -hmm. the uppity black woman who thinks she's better than us kind of thing this is what we have to deal with yeah. in a heartbeat so i i find i don't know if the mic recorded my heavy side <laughs> <laughs> so you know and we're like it's funny to me that that black people especially are always being told to pick themselves up by the bootstraps and don't be a victim yet when we succeed you all don't want us there you want to take us down a peg so that we're not higher than you so success of especially black people in the eyes of white people means that you have to still be lower in status than them right wow yeah yeah absolutely so and white Canadians especially are really good at this because they're cool with diversity if that diversity is serving them their coffee. They're not cool with diversity if they have to report to it. Mm. Yeah. So. yeah. That's my rent and receipts. Chew on that, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I am kinda still doing the political thing. Um but this is a slightly different track. 
um, little little bit more to digest about Donald Trump as well. But I'm picking up. I want to start by talking a l- about a Twitter thread that Kathleen Wynne had up on April 18th. So it's a little slightly dated now, but I'll put it into a context. But essentially, she's writing in response to reporters who asked her about Doug Ford, who made some comments. Um, that were essentially implying, you know, the same sort of lock her up messaging uh, that Trump had leveled against Hillary Clinton. And of course, we know Doug Ford is going after Kathleen Wynne, saying uh, that, you know, the books need to be audited by an outside auditor or a public commission, um, and that essentially she's committed many frauds and scandals, and he's going to, you know, uh, reveal all of this if elected. And so she writes this, Kathleen Wynne, Premier of Ontario, writes this Twitter thread saying, let's call this out for what it is. Doug Ford sounds like Donald Trump. And that is because he is like Donald Trump. He believes in an ugly, vicious brand of politics and traffics in smears and lies. He'll say anything about anyone at any time because, just like Donald Trump, it's all about him. Not about our people and their families, not about Ontario's success, but about him. And that's how Trump campaigned in 2016. That's how Ford is campaigning right now. And I guarantee you it'll get worse before it gets better. We saw this uh, this week when Ford lied, flat out lied, about his appalling comments about families living with autism. Yesterday he did it again when he called, he when he all but chanted, lock her up talking about me. It's not about me. I have a pretty thick skin, but I want people to notice what's going on here. Doug Ford stands for nothing but Doug Ford. And just like Donald Trump, there's only one way to deal with him. You have to stand up to him and be- because that's how you deal with a bully. Michelle Obama, who I admire greatly, recommended that they, when they go low, <laughs> Erica shaking her head, when they go low, we go high. I like that. I, I like the idea when she said it until we ended up with Donald Trump in the White House. So I'm sorry, but not again. Not here. Not in Ontario. I'm not going to go high. I'm not going to go low. I'm going to call that bullying behavior out for what it is. Because he may be Donald Trump, but I'm not Hillary Clinton. And Ontario is not the United States of America. We can't let this happen. Not here. Not ever. This is Kathleen Wynne's comment. Um, And I think there's some things to unpack there. Like Erica's chomping at the bit to get on the mic. Uh, (laughs) Um, but I, I thought about it again because I r- was reading and we shared this on Twitter, uh, pe- Press Progress had put out a breakdown of uh, a recent uh, Ontario P- um, uh, Doug Ford appointment of a far-right uh, former rebel media host uh, who's now running as an Ontario PC candidate um, and breaking down all of the uh, things that he has said um as part of the rebel, as part of Ezra Levant's uh, crew, things that are explicitly anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, uh, white supremacist views, talking about the quote-unquote pussification of the West, um, wow. you know, outright um, climate change denial, um, appearing on neo-Nazi podcast, like, you know, just, f- you know, reciting white supremacist creed, promoting a 1930s book that called for the elimination of Jews, um, he has said women deserve to be raped because of uh, the German refu- because of German refugee policies, like all sorts of lunacy. Um, and of course, he's 
you know, been photographed with Ford. Ford is proud to welcome, an on, welcome him on as a candidate to his caucus. Um, and I think he, there's a conversation now about, well, well, what are Doug Ford's actual chances? Right now, Andrea Horvath is leading him in the polls, but that may not, that doesn't necessarily mean those people are going to come out to vote. I think the Doug Ford, Ford Nation machine is real and we should be conscious of it. But is he actually Donald Trump? Um, and and what does that mean to be like Donald Trump as a candidate? Because people are using that as a marker, um, you know, to say this is a right-wing populist, even though right-wing populism is actually pretty rampant across the globe right now. In Europe, there are many right-wing populist parties that have seen a lot of success uh, that predate and some that post-date Trump, but I think it's it's more than that. It's a little convenient to say someone's like Donald Trump, but I don't know what you're, if you guys want to weigh in on that. I think Donald Trump represents exactly what we talked about in This Week in Feminism. Mm-hmm. And he is the last hope for to retain whiteness, male whiteness as the um, as the head of the structure, the social and economic structure, mm-hmm. and um, I really like. I don't think it's just it's just that he's like Donald Trump. Like, I don't know how you can say he's not. Well, uh, here's the thing. Like, a lot of the stuff Doug, uh, Doug Ford says, Rob Ford was also saying. Mm-hmm. But this and is, okay. And, and, but, but that's what I mean, though. Like, so we have to be more critical than just to say he's Donald Trump no, no, and no, therefore no, no, we no, should no, be no. afraid. Okay. Yeah. So, Donald, so I just want to say exactly that. We had right-wing populism from the Reform Party, mm. for example. Some that good institutional memory there. That's important <laughs> for people to remember. I think we forget that. I'm yeah, no totally. Girl. <laughs> this, I, is the receipts, you know why? this is the receipts part of the segment. Y- yes, <laughs> it is. You know why? I will never forget the Reform Party because I went to school with Nathan Manning in oh. like grade oh. seven or something, and he called me a nigger, so I will never what forget the Reform Party. Fuck. So there you go. That's why I will never forget. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I don't really, I don't really trust them. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I'm fully aware of right wing populism. I've lived like with it or within that structure. My basically, a lot of my life. So this looks like. So to pretend that somehow this is, I think, ah. So I think you're right in the saying that it's kind of lazy to say that, oh, so-and-so's like Donald Trump, because it negates the fact that there is homegrown right-wing populism Mm -hmm. right here that predated Trump, Mm -hmm. like way predated Trump. I think it shirks responsibility. It It, like diminishes our own culpability. And she's saying it to sort of say Ontario isn't, she says explicitly, Ontario is not the United States. Well, As if we're better somehow. Or well, that's Canadian yeah. exceptionalism at yeah, work. Yes. Right? Thank like, you, Canadian we exceptionalism. We think that we are better and different than the U.S. because we are literally a different country. Because we didn't have slavery. Yeah. But we and did. But we did. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but we did. <laughs> that's the joke. That's the joke's on us. The joke is that we're, you know what, what and we've talked about this before, but like, the U.S. is a lot more open with what their policies are and like what their history is. And I think in a sense, more honest. It is. Yeah, it is. more And honest. like we just don't know our history. Well, yeah. we don't know ourselves, I think. I think a lot of our identity is based on 
um, first of all, is based on this like Ontario, Quebec, St. Lawrence corridor, upper lower Canada idea of what Canada is. Because I can't remember I, the last time I saw a maple leaf growing, you know, in Alberta. Like, I'm just saying. And secondly, um, it's always vis-a-vis the United States. What does some... Okay, I read on... I read a Facebook comment once. Like, I swear, this was like a couple of years ago, and I thought it was brilliant. Somebody um, compared Britain, the U.S., and Canada to the Bennett sisters in Pride and Prejudice, and that um, Britain was Jane, you know, the, the, the eldest. Um, America's Lydia, the youngest and, and, and petulant. And Canada was just Mary, bland, no <laughs> originality, you know, head in a book all the time, mm. doesn't lift their head to see what's going out on in the world. And I think it's a it's a wonderful analogy. Um, I I as I said earlier, I think Doug Ford's going to win this election, and I think he's going to win this election because a lot of um, centrist leftist whatever just don't know how to deal yeah I think that's right and I think that I don't know that Doug Ford will win a majority government just because there are so many people who abhor him and he's picking very I agree with that candidates I agree with that I don't think he's going to get a majority he may get a, like, I'm talking about, like, a slim minority. Yeah. I mean, minority government. Yeah. Not minority, but minority government. But, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think that this is, as we, we mentioned earlier, this is a backlash to the Trudeau government. It's a backlash to basically just progressivism in general and you know the mismanagement of the Ontario Liberal Party as a whole um, particularly because you know Kathleen Wynne has been is a woman at the head of the party and has been for so long and there's just been a lot of issues under her watch that people are just like fuck this and then they're feeling emboldened by Donald Trump's election in the states she, I think there are a number of factors that are She is, like, she says she's not like Hillary, but let's be honest, Hillary was not the best candidate. Yeah. Right? She, um... But she was the most experienced uh, political presidential, the most uh, qualified presidential candidate in American history. Yeah. She does. She wasn't a good politician. No, she wasn't. She had a lot of baggage. That's the problem. She'd been yeah. on the scene for too long and yeah. carried out with her. I'm just being facetious yeah, yeah. when I oh, say I that. Oh, I totally know. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the framing that people yeah. level is that she was the most qualified. And, and that's not what a politician makes. But that's not what politics is about. It's not about your resume. You know what I mean? It's about like not to the extent that people think it is. Like you have to engage people. You have to get people. You have to inspire people. That's what Obama was so great at. Well, and you're a conduit for voters. Like you need to be able to um, reflect, reflect them and to, you know, listen and and carry their stories and and ideas forward, not just 
your own from this removed place of privilege where you've been, you know, ensconced. It's, and and it's not because I think Doug Ford is great. It's because I don't think Kathleen Wynne is a good candidate. And I don't think she's a good candidate, especially for the times we're in. I don't know if I agree, agree with that part of it, but I, I kind of, I yeah. Electricity. I <laughs> I'll start with that. <laughs> I mean, I rent and I don't pay my own hydro, so <laughs> that may all be part of it. But I think she's, she's done a lot and she's taken a lot of risks and she's brought in a lot of law reform. She's brought in some innovative ideas on like, um, you know, social injustice fronts. And I think that's, I think her contributions have been really valuable. She also carries, unfortunately, though, a lot of baggage from you know, previous liberal administrations. And that's that's her biggest um, cross to bear for sure. And electricity. But that's but that's <laughs> like, yeah, there yeah. is an economic yeah. issue there. Yeah. I pay my own electricity. So <laughs> I'm I'm fully aware. <laughs> so my rent and receipts this week is a piece from the establishment in which the author talks about her experience in trying to obtain birth control. So the writer is American, and she um, has been on this type of birth control for 10 months and is going to the pharmacy to get a renewal of her prescription, except the pharmacist says that they can't get a hold of her doctor, and she says, well, like, I've already been on the prescription. Just, like, give it to me. Like, it's fine. And then she they get a hold of her doctor because the pharmacist says no, and the doctor won't renew the prescription or give the authorization for it without her having to first go in and get a pelvic exam and a pap test. And she says, well, this doesn't make sense because I recently had a pap test within like the last year. Um, and, you know, we've now learned that we don't need them annually. We need them every three to five years. Da 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 da. And they, you know, HPV, some types of HPV can kind of heal themselves over time and you don't necessarily need to get additional treatment plus there are a lot of false positives with pap tests blah 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 so she goes on to say that you know this this process that we put women through to get birth control you know getting a full pelvic exam every time you need to renew your prescription is you know, basically the equivalent of requiring a cis man to undergo a urethra swab and prostate exam prior to buying condoms. Um, and she ends up canceling her exam with her doctor because she just felt like it was so many hurdles for her just to get access to birth control. So she went off the pill and found a website called Lemonade, which is a virtual doctor in which she pays $25 for an online assessment, and then the doctor can prescribe the birth control, and then is mailed to her directly. And um, she gets three months at a time. But basically, the whole point of her argument is that, you know, as long as birth control is given and prescribed and doled out by doctors, women are still not able to have agency and sovereignty over their own bodies and they're not free f or we're not free from obstruction and coercion. And, you know, that's that's still a major, major hurdle because doctors feel like just feel like they need to have some sort of input, even though they don't necessarily. And that is just basically a hindrance upon women to to get the 
yeah, that abs- they're looking for. Absolutely. That's so troubling. I I don't think that's required. Like, I feel like that <laughs> can't possibly be medically necessary or standard practice. And considering this train on healthcare systems, not, and it's not just a Canadian public funding problem, mm-hmm. it's a strain in the U.S. too, that you would ha- conduct unnecessary exams. Like, to what end? Like, who is that serving? Yeah, especially, like, you know, and she had insurance and... Yeah. Her insurance was covering her birth control and yeah. all of these things. Yeah. And still the doctor was like, no, you need to like come in for yeah. a checkup. That's nuts. Yeah. Um, but I had never really thought about the fact that like requiring women to physically go into a doctor's office and have these checkups was a barrier to birth control mm-hmm. or obtaining birth control. Because I guess I've never felt imposed upon in that way mm-hmm. with my when I was on the pill, I, my doctors would always give me a year, 18 mm-hmm. months of prescription mm-hmm. with, you know, and they, so it would be refills mm-hmm. and they'd be like, cool, we'll see you next time you have to get your pap. And that, and that, that time it was every year. Every year. Mm-hmm. So they would just give you any prescription or if I would go in for something else, they'd say, do you need any prescriptions? Do you need like a birth control mm-hmm. or whatever? But even, even being able to go for an annual physical whether it includes a pap or not or to see a doctor on a regular basis Mm -hmm. is really difficult for some people it can be a huge imposition on time and resources especially if you're lower income Um, and even having access to a regular physician is really difficult Um, and so the idea too that there are so many and and like birth control is nothing to joke about because it does it you know it's it does take a toll on your body Mm -hmm. and and you should check in with a medical professional of some kind about like side effects and whatever else yep. but there's got to be a better way mm. to like dispense it that isn't like so in uh so invasive um a friend recently uh went to um the clinic a walk-in clinic here in town um with thinking um she had a blood clot from from birth control or from like an ied and the male doctor who was on call just like spent the first part of the visit grilling her about well why what like why are you on this particular kind of birth control and what why did you not start birth control sooner things like that like really invasive questions and she was like well i'm not here to talk about that like i think i have a blood clot like i left work can we talk about that please and he was like why are you getting mad why are you frustrated and then just like cold shouldered the rest of the appointment like super weird like doctors are super weird about birth control if they're not trained in it like if they're not trained or don't regularly see patients in that way it's like very bizarre and it's it's definitely not a thing of course that men would ever have to deal with and you know the idea that like when you're you have to think about side effects every single day they can be Mm life-threatening um most most for some people it's a non-issue but you have you're cognizant of these things then you go to the doctor and you're being gaslighted about like you know you're like you know whether or not you understand your own body when meanwhile they don't really understand what they're prescribing or you know in any real way um yeah it's it's really fucked up well, this just goes to the issue of, well, this is obviously an access issue, obviously, but um, I don't, I'm, I guess my 
question. I wonder how much is wasted in terms of time and money in the industry because of um, doctors' reticence for women to trust that a woman knows her own body. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like male doctors specifically? No. No, I think there's a history, there's a strong history in the medical profession that women um cannot do are are flighty or or they just don't know or mm-hmm. they they overreact and it's based in this idea that a woman cannot um logically or systematically or like know what's wrong Mm -hmm. that it's a woman's hysteria and the stereotype of a woman being hysterical that precludes her from actually judging what may be wrong with her medically Mm -hmm. and in this sense not wrong with her but what she may need medically. Well, and and recently there was a study that showed that the pains that some women experience uh, from, uh, how do you say, I think dysmorphia, when you have, it's essentially people who have endometriosis and have really Mm. painful cramps, uh, and there's a term for the pain you get from the cramps themselves, it's another medical term, Uh, but essentially that that pain is akin to the pain of having a heart attack. Um, and that doctors have been quite dismissive of that. Don't prescribe anything for it. Um, in fact, the most you'll get prescribed for endometriosis is birth control so that you just don't have your periods. But some people will still have cramps even mm-hmm. after that. Um, but flat out dismissing pain. And pain is very hard for, for there's no measure of pain except for self-disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for, for women, that's often, as you say, historically and, and to this day, very much dismissed or uh, minimized because, um, you know, you're relying on, on the patient. And for some reason, women are apparently not uh, we reliable. Can't be, <laughs> we can't be trusted. <laughs> can't be trusted to tell you if we have our own. Like, who's, exa- like who's out there, like you know, embellishing their pain and to what end, like it's people are just trying to seek treatment. It's some bullshit. Well, it's, and it brings in this, this infantilizing of women and that, oh, well, she may be doing it just for attention or, oh, it's probably not as bad as she thinks Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And you're like, bitch, I've been through childbirth. You know what I mean? Yeah, or I live with these cramps on a regular basis. Or I live with cramps or whatever. And it's, I I just find that the medical profession still harbors this idea that women cannot be trusted to A, tell you what's wrong, the severity of it, or to ascertain whether or not there is something wrong. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of the Serena story mm-hmm. that we talked about yes. a few episodes yes. ago. Yeah, yeah. And how even Serena Williams could not be trusted to know that something uh, was I wrong found with her. Such a heartbreaking story. Wow. And like if she had been um out of it like a little bit and wasn't like alert enough or like because she was in so much fucking pain and like to be able to communicate that and assert herself despite all the hurdles but i think there are countless people who aren't in you know who weren't so lucky i'm sure um yeah fuck 
Well, on that note, (laughs) (laughs) get social with us. Uh, Find us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook at Bad and B Podcast, and email us badandbpod at gmail.com. Bye. 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 Bye.